Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled Never Again, Zephaniah 315 in the Hope of Divine Judgment, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December 17, 2006, the third Sunday in Advent. In his book, The New Faces of Christianity, Believing the Bible in the Global South, Penn State professor Philip Jenkins explores how most Christians in the world read scripture with an immediacy that people in Europe and North America might find naive. In the West, for example, readers casually dismiss texts about the demonic as, quote, scarcely even an embarrassment, end quote, says Jenkins whereas readers in Latin America, Asia, and Africa interpret such texts more simply because for them, as Jenkin notes, quote, a trip to the marketplace might well mean an encounter with a magician claiming to invoke pagan forces, end quote. Or consider the state. In the West, Jenkins notes, stable economies, governments, and courts lend plausibility to our myth of secular progress. Whereas in much of the world, people experience the state as dysfunctional, corrupt, hostile, and violent. And so they read biblical texts about subverting the powers more simply and more literally. Evil powers and violent politics, along with starvation, disease, genocide, displacement, and crushing debt, are principalities and powers that threaten daily life for many people. For ordinary believers who live in contexts like these, the Bible offers a compelling, revolutionary, liberating, and explanatory narrative of hope, rather than a pre-scientific myth that specialists must deconstruct. In particular, the Old Testament themes of divine retribution and human restoration ring true to these believers. They speak a language that many in the West have forgotten. The obscure prophet Zephaniah from this week's Old Testament reading provides a case in point. Zephaniah's five-page prophecy is easy to describe, even if it's difficult to explain. At least 25 times he refers to the day of the Lord, or semantic equivalents. Zephaniah, Zephaniah announces a day of destruction for all the oppressors of the earth, whom he compares to ravenous wolves that feed all night, only to leave a pile of bones in the morning. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Such will be what Zephaniah calls the great day of the Lord's wrath. He describes it as a day of bitterness, anguish, ruin, and gloom. When is this day of judgment? Zephaniah writes that it is near and coming quickly. A natural reading is that he foresaw the coming invasion of Babylon, roughly 50 years away in his future. The Hebrews already knew the destruction that befell the northern kingdom of Israel a hundred years earlier in 722 BC at the hands of Assyria. 
But given Zephaniah's global pronouncements, perhaps he envisioned not only the near future in, in history for Israel, but also a far future beyond history for the entire cosmos. At any rate, discerning God's judgment has less to do with solving a puzzle about what the Greeks called chronos, clock time, and everything to do with sensing what they called kairos, that special moment when God speaks and acts today. As one would expect, Zephaniah has harsh words for his own community. He deplores Israel's religious idolatry, their worship of Baal and Molech. He denounces wanton luxury predicated upon exploitation. He describes his people as those who flaunted what he calls quote-unquote foreign clothes, expensive imports from exotic destinations. The financial district, merchants, and those who quote trade with silver, end quote, what we might call Jerusalem's equivalent of Wall Street, will be wiped out. In the political, social, religious, and cultural realms, violent oppression ruled the day. Judah's government, its officials, prophets, and priests were all characterized as predators who destroyed the powerless. This, writes Zephaniah, is a people who, quote, knows no shame. Zephaniah's purview includes not just Judah, or her surrounding enemies, but the entire world. He expands his prophetic judgments to include the five surrounding nations of Philistia, Moab, Ammon, Cush, and Assyria, and then again to include the whole earth. His vision is universal. Portions of his prophecy about the day of the Lord are directed to, quote, the whole world, end quote to all who live on the earth, the nations and kingdoms, quote, on every shore, end quote. For readers in the West who scoff at notions of divine judgment as embarrassing or unworthy of God, the powerless in the global South remind us that the alternative is impunity for the Saddam Husseins of the world, along with a forfeiture of hope for vindication for the dispossessed who experienced the unimaginable horrors of Baghdad, Congo, Rwanda, and Darfur. Stretching across 25 centuries, spoken to and for ancient Judaism, but speaking today to Christians, Darfur's dis dispossessed Muslims, Hindus' untouchable Dalits, and all the exploited of the earth who've endured pillage, plunder, displacement, torture, starving, burning of villages, and the systematic rape of their women, no matter their age, Zephaniah prophesies a message of radical redemption. We read in Zephaniah 3.15 that a day is coming when never again will you fear any harm. The divine judgment that Zephaniah describes is the same for God's elect as for their pagan enemies. He insists that Yahweh plays no favorites. With his pronouncements about not only Israel's archenemies, but also the nations and peoples of the entire earth, 
Zephaniah is an egalitarian globalist far ahead of his time. We rightly dismiss characters of divine judgment that picture God as capricious, arbitrary, vindictive, or sadistic. Rather, God's judgment is a purifying response to everything that dehumanizes us, violence, oppression, religious fakery, exploitation, exile, disease, famine, and war. Does our moral imagination really believe that a Charles Taylor, an Omar al-Bashir in Darfur, or an Idi Amin slaughters with impunity? Or again, do I really want God to leave me to my own worst impulses of envy, greed, anger, and lust? Or do I want him to judge, rescue, and purify me from them? To me, the most terrifying texts in the Bible are not those of divine judgment, but those that suggest that God might abandon me to the consequences of my own sin, poor choices, foolishness, apathy, and ignorance. The refiner's fire that John the Baptist announces in this week's gospel can purge us, cleanse, and restore us. In Zephaniah, Yahweh's retribution is thus redemptive. It's not merely a punitive end in itself, but a means to a better end. God scatters, but he also gathers. Zephaniah announces impending doom, but three times he also issues an invitation and appeal, beseeching us to seek the Lord before the awful day of the Lord. Divine judgment is not inevitable. It is not some immutable law of fate or history. Should we repent, as John the Baptist invites us to do in this week's gospel, God will eagerly restore us. Zephaniah envisions a day when God, quote-unquote, takes away our punishment. A time, quote, you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me, end quote. It is a day, we read, when Yahweh is mighty to save, a time when he takes great delight in us, a time when he will quiet us with his love and rejoice over us with singing. Echoing his prophetic compatriots, Zephaniah says that the day of the Lord is ultimately a day when, quote, the nations on every shore will worship him, everyone in his own land which is to say a day is coming, according to Zephaniah, when never again will you fear any harm. Zephaniah 3.15 And now for further reflection. How do you understand God's judgment? Number two, what did Jesus mean when he said in John 9.39, for judgment, I came into the world. Number three, how has your social location influenced your own reading of the Bible? Number four, if given the opportunity as a Christian, what would you tell refugees from Darfur, Congo, or Iraq? And finally, for further reading, see the book by Samantha Power, a Problem from Hell, America in the Age of Genocide. 
In the book I've already mentioned by Philip Jenkins, The New Faces of Christianity, Believing the Bible in the Global South. For books this week, I review a fascinating book edited by Lori Goldenstone, the title of which is American War Poetry, an Anthology. New York, Columbia University Press, 2006, 413 pages. There are many ways to try to understand humanity's dark impulse to slaughter each other in war. When I was 13, my grandmother took me to Washington, D.C. in 1968, at the height of the Vietnam War. I still remember the sights and sounds of protest. Later, as an adult, I visited the war memorial commemorating that war and watched as visitors groped along the wall to identify the name of a loved one. In 1995, our family stood on the streets of downtown Moscow while a military parade celebrated the 50th anniversary of the end of World War II, a war which claimed the lives of some 50 million Russians. Our family has also appreciated the oral history provided by my wife's stepfather, who fought with what Tom Brokaw called the greatest generation. I've also benefited from reading histories written by experts long after a war ended. Those written while battles still raged, for example, in Iraq, and especially autobiographical accounts written by soldiers like Jarhead. Everyone, in my opinion, should read Chris Hedges' masterpiece called War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning. Thanks to Lori Goldensome, we can now try to understand war through poetry. About half of the 232 poems in this book were written by people who participated in war in some fashion. She's arranged the poems in chronological order by the poet's date of birth, grouping them according to specific wars, for example, beginning with the Colonial Wars, the Revolutionary War, War of 1812, and so on. The poems begin with skirmishes with Indians in 1746 and end with the insurgents in contemporary Iraq. Each section begins with a brief description of the war and its social context. Brief biographies of the poets humanize them even more. These war poems, written across nearly 400 years, explore almost every human emotion you might imagine pride and patriotism, propaganda and protest, victory and defeat, bravery and fear, death and mutilation, glorious triumphs and depressing futility, so-called good wars like World War II and bad wars like Vietnam. Contrary to the misconception, that poetry is unrelated to so-called real life, editor Lori Goldenstone documents the efforts of poets who interacted with the greatest of human tragedies. Lori Goldenstone, American War Poetry. For film this week, I review a short documentary entitled Darfur Diaries from the year 2006. 
Despite global hand-wringing, accords, agreements, and peacekeeping forces, the Darfur genocide that began in July 2003 continues. Film directors Aisha Bain and Jen Marlowe take the viewer on-site to Darfur and through on-camera interviews with dozens of local people, let the people describe the tragedy in their own words. Their personal anecdotes are heartbreaking and appalling. The desert landscape, windswept and littered with bomb fragments, is stark. Despite its denials, the Sudanese government under President Omar al-Bashir has backed the Janjaweed militias to plunder, pillage, rape women of every age, and liquidate hundreds of villages. According to the United Nations, 400,000 people have died and over 2 million have been displaced, many refugees pouring into Chad. This document, documentary is only 55 minutes long, but it's a graphic, powerful, and informative reminder of how much of the world can ignore the most unimaginable horrors when countries have no self-interest at stake. Darfur Diaries from the year 2006. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted Advent Credo by the Catholic priest Daniel Berrigan. Berrigan was born in 1921. It is not true that creation and the human family are doomed to destruction and loss. This is true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It is not true that we must accept inhumanity and discrimination, hunger and poverty, death and destruction. This is true. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. It is not true that violence and hatred should have the last word and that war and destruction rule forever. This is true. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting, the Prince of Peace. It is not true that we are simply victims of the powers of evil who seek to rule the world. This is true. To me is given authority in heaven and on earth, and lo, I am with you even until the end of the world. It is not true that we have to wait for those who are specially gifted, who are the prophets of the church, before we can be peacemakers. This is true. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall have dreams. It is not true that our hopes for liberation of humankind, of justice, of human dignity, of peace, are not meant for this earth and for this history. This is true. The hour comes, and it is now, that the true worshipers shall worship God in spirit and in truth. So let us enter Advent in hope, 
even hope against hope. Let us see visions of love and peace and justice. Let us affirm with humility, with joy, with faith, with courage, Jesus Christ, the life of the world. Advent Credo by Daniel Berrigan, taken from his book entitled Testimony, The Word Made Flesh. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, December 17th, 2006, the third Sunday in Advent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.